0: D- 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 Dignity of man. Well, we're way past 1984. As the president's spokesperson Rudy Giuliani put it recently, the truth is not truth. And whenever I think I have some degree of understanding of history that informs present day reality, I'm thrown by the unexpected and often inexplicable. Political cultures and nations themselves rely on a glue of common understanding of what is true. So, what happens when that essential glue itself is attacked? Who would have imagined that there'd be powerful uh, forces intentionally seeking to replace truth with untruth in people's minds, making demonstrable reality become equal in value to mere feelings, being educated equal in value to ignorance? and making it so that a lot of people don't even care. It's almost beyond belief that evolution is once again under siege nearly a century after the Scopes trial. Logic is being displaced by simplistic, reassuring beliefs. This is amazingly what has been happening with startling success. Forces like Fox News and Steve Bannon have generated, whipped up, and exploited confusion In the minds of millions of americans resulting in a lot of citizens preferring the comfort of simple easy answers instead of the troubling realities of our actual complex world our guest today clinical psychologist attorney and political activist and now author brian welch uh, out of a concern for the effects beyond political to psychological writes about that long-term effect all this is having on the stability of the american mind itself His new book is called State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. Longtime political strategist Robert Shrum says of this book, Bryant Welch makes a fascinating and compelling case that right-wing politics has subverted our democracy by infecting us with a form of national political neurosis. That's an intentional infection. In this new book, our guest Brian Welch explains how and why Americans must act to fight back against this harmful manipulation. Brian Welch, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive.
1: Thank you, Bert. It's a pleasure. Appreciate your inviting me.
0: Brian Welch is a nationally renowned clinical psychologist and attorney. (laughs) Interesting combination. He lived in Washington, D.C. for 17 years where he served as first executive director for professional practice of the American Psychological Association. He oversaw organized psychology's most impactful advocacy era, leading successful efforts to expand access to psychological care and using psychological understanding to combat human rights abuses in many settings. For these efforts, he's received many numerous awards and was an outspoken opponent of the APA's Involvement in Human Torture Under the Bush Administration. And speaking of George W. Bush, you first published this book in in 2008. Has there been a discernible change over the the decades since in terms of the state of confusion and the assault on the American mind itself? I'm afraid
1: there has, and that's really why I issued the, the second and updated version of State of Confusion. Uh, The simple way for your listeners to get a measure of that deterioration, uh, very quickly hold up in front of yourself an image of George W. Bush, and now replace that with the image of Donald Trump. Uh, That is a very good measure of the deterioration that's taken place in the functioning of the American mind. And in the first version of State of Confusion, I expressed an alarm and talked about the the many variables in the mind that were contributing to this problem. And and as I said at the time, uh, those problems would not go away when George Bush left office, in fact, unless they were interrupted by an increased awareness of the mind that they would only deteriorate and we would get someone like Donald Trump. And unfortunately, that's where we are so in the new version of State of Confusion, I, I show, I take these same psychological variables and show the deterioration that that's quite marked, as I think one can see when they just contrast their feelings about George W. Bush today and their feelings about Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, a lot of us <clears throat> really didn't like George W. Bush, but uh, there's just no comparison in so many uh, qualitative uh, aspects. I wonder about the vastness of the internet and social media and its effects on conceptions of truth and conceptions of reality on those platforms people can say and do anything and people believe much of it uh, and and it degrades truth one satirist put a quote from Abraham Lincoln on social media in which our 16th president is quoted as saying the problem with quotes on the internet is that it's hard to verify their authenticity Obviously, that's a joke. Let me start by asking how much you think social media, which has really expanded since the first version of the book, uh, has undercut a commonly shared understanding of truth and reality. That it, aspect it, alone.
1: Yeah. No. It it exacerbates and facilitates the kind of problems that I described in the first version and that I talk about and amplify in the second version of the book. Uh, mass media. Has given, uh, has, has given all manner of individuals direct access to the American mind. Uh, you know, the beginning, the most uh, important example early on of this was the 1960 Nixon-Kennedy debates, where for the first time, instead of reading about candidates or maybe seeing them from a distance, and a small percentage would hear them speak or listen, now you had a television set that would go right close, face-up, to John Kennedy and to Richard Nixon. Now, the quality of experience that created was extremely visceral. Uh, You think of what it felt like to experience John Kennedy, who was handsome and suave, and, uh, and then Richard Nixon, who was sweaty and jowly. Now, unfortunately, with mass media... We're now making our decisions on the basis of those kinds of very subjective, visceral, in-our-body kinds of sensations. So people come up with a feeling state, and then they look for reasons why they have them. But it's that primal and primary feeling state that is driving the way the mind functions and the experience people get when they're with a political candidate. Social media has just taken that phenomena and it just exploded it. So it's gone up exponentially and it's facilitated a new problem. The biggest task the mind has is to formulate our view of reality. Uh, You know, you're referring to it as truth, and truth is what we think is real. That is a product of the mind. We think of reality as just being something out there, that we just discern and see. But it's much more complicated than that because there's a whole lot of reality out there for the mind to have to sort through and organize into one's own reality sense. When the mind struggles to do that, when things get too complex, when people's minds are traumatized by life events and the breakup of the family and the community, it doesn't do that reality formation very well and it tends to get dependent on external figures. It can be a demagogue, it can be a uh strong sounding uh political commentator. They look to someone else to tell them what's real. And and this is where social media comes in, they don't want to threaten themselves and their sense of reality by hearing different points of view, so they tend to dial in the reality that they want. Uh, that, that they want to hear mainly because it will fortify their own mm-hmm. when the mind is struggling to do its create its reality it gets very anxious and it will do anything to avoid that including buying into a pseudo or fake reality
0: so it's been intentional this this confusion pushing the confusion and and what you're talking about does relate to the founding of of this country, which was based on the idea that that self government is is uh something we want to do that it's something essential, and that that freedom does require responsibility and it you know it's not easy it's not a spectator sport, as many people have said and I note that you uh, uh your your quote in the very beginning of the book from Eric Fromm in his book Escape from Freedom. Can freedom become a burden too heavy for man to bear, something he tries to escape from? And it sounds like uh, that has been going on, and uh, certain forces have been feeding <laughs> very much at the trough of, of of people being confused and wanting to escape freedom, and we've seen that throughout history of difficult times. I mean, certainly after uh, the First World War, Things were very confusing for the people of Germany, and thus arose a uh, a dictator who had all the answers. And there, it seems like there must be some psychological uh, uh, basis for, for for that that uh, that, that uh, you know has gone on throughout history. That uh, you know, an organizing uh, fig- figure, a guy on a white horse, and it's always a guy. I, I wonder about that.
1: Well, it's very what it's very well stated. The the way uh, I explain this in the book is you have three levels of problems. You start with the human mind, and the mind is a uh, an organ just like our heart or our stomach, and it's miraculous, but it's also limited, and it's affected by how it's treated, what's done to it, what the burden is that's placed on it. So the mind itself is a limited organ. And if we can become aware of that, we can begin to use it a little more effectively. But the second thing is, the mind is not only limited, but in contemporary America, we have massive amounts of unrecognized psychological trauma. And, you know, one of the hopeful things is we're starting to understand psychological trauma. When I was in graduate school 40 years ago, we never even talked about trauma. It was as if it didn't really? exist. No. Of course, it always has. Yeah. So you have a, 80% of the American public has undergone a significant psychological trauma. And as I show in the book, that takes a long-term toll on the functioning of this already limited structure, the human mind. Then the piece that I think you've emphasized quite well then you have people coming in with powerful new instruments that can exploit Uh those vulnerabilities. And I talk about three of them in the book, what I I call the battleground states. Uh, They're not red or blue states, they're, they're psychological states. And if the mind is attacked in one of those three areas, or two or three of those areas, the mind really begins to struggle. And it can really get distracted and become more and more dysfunctional. So in the battleground states that I talk about, there's paranoia. You know, that there is a person of brown skin trying to come up from Central America and wreak havoc on you. Uh, But anyone who's seen these crowds, uh, that's not who these people are. But if you play on the paranoid strings of the mind, you can really disrupt the effective functioning of the mind. I talk about sexual perplexity, which has been a, a big issue in at least three of the last four presidential elections. Uh, there's, uh, Regardless of the merits, other merits or other issues, it, misogyny is the reason Donald Trump is, is an independently sufficient reason why Donald Trump is president of the United States. And I talk in the book about how misogyny works inside the mind why so many white American women uh, voted Mm. against Hillary Clinton. And the third battleground state is envy or greed, and how easy that is to trigger off and use in a disruptive way. So you've got this limited organism that's been traumatized, and then it's manipulated like crazy by very powerful, very effective new mass media techniques. Mm. And here we are.
0: Ugh, here we are my goodness and, and dear listener we will get to some hope and and ways of getting out of this before the end of the show so stick with us bert cohen here on keeping democracy alive our guest today is bryant welch whose new book state of confusion political manipulation and the assault on the american mind well i got to follow up on something you just said that's been an absolute mystery to me white middle class women voting for Trump over Hillary Clinton. What? Why did they do that? Like 53% of them did. What, what the heck is the explanation for that? I've never been able to figure that out.
1: It's it's a great question. And what I describe in the mind with these battleground states, the mind is struggling to create a reality sense that tells it what is and, what, and how they should respond to it and how they should behave. Our gender identification, are we male or are we female, is one of the things that people hang a lot of their hats on that will answer some of those questions. Now, we've been struggling to get out of centuries and centuries of oppression of women, but for many women, not just men, but for many women, there is a security they take in these established patterns of what being male means and what being female means. And when you have someone like Hillary Clinton who comes up and says, I'm a woman and I can be president, it really disrupts the orientation that people are using the gender roles and the oppressive gender roles even so that if you remove that, maybe it makes them anxious. Now, People don't confront that kind of anxiety directly. They just experience that kind of visceral discomfort I was talking about earlier. It's at that visceral level of experience. There are millions of Americans walking around who think they hate Hillary Clinton because she used the wrong email server. Right. Now, whether that was good or bad, uh, it just isn't the kind of thing that should evoke intense hatred <laughs> and what i'm saying is the physical discomfort like i was describing in the nixon kennedy debates it's that visceral sensation that becomes compelling and they then unconsciously look for an explanation fox news comes in with his statement with their statement donald trump says lock her up and we're off and running to the hate Hillary show, um, and you know it's uh, it's it's really horribly unfortunate. Uh, I, I worked with her briefly in D.C., and I didn't personally get to know her well, but I got enough of a glimpse, and I have enough friends who do know her well. You know, the depiction of her as this uh, monster is is absurd. She's one of the the best schooled, uh, hardest working. Uh, public servants we've had, and one can disagree with her policies. Fine. But that shouldn't lead to the kind of hatred that's being directed. And I'm saying it's not just coincidence that she's the first woman since Eleanor Roosevelt who has achieved national national stature as a political figure. So we pay a huge price uh, for misogyny.
0: Yeah, we do. and But
1: people... to your point about why were a majority of white women, it was threatening to them. Yes. It's very disruptive yes. if these roles that we have traditionally filled weren't ordained and pre prescribed by God.
0: <laughs> well, a lot of people, let's face it, as you know from your psychological uh, uh, background, people stay in abusive relationships because it's familiar. It's familiar. And I guess uh, this... You know, it's hard to break out of that. Freedom, you know, freedom is a hard thing. It's challenging. It's so much easier to be a subject and do what your fearless leader tells you. And I I see an awful lot of that. And, you know, at least half the country was up in arms about Donald Trump's election, especially uh, uh, people with disabilities. Oh my, it was just unbelievable, of course. Uh, And it hurt people very badly and scared them a lot. And fear is important. You're quick to note that Trump is not the problem, but he's a symptom of a much larger problem. What is it that really led to his election? How did we get here? This could be a long discussion.
1: I I think your examples uh, set up the answer for me very well. Uh, What Trump did with his attack on, uh, but but literally in a press conference, you know, attacking a a reporter with a disability. uh, What did that do? Well, in fact, what Donald Trump has offered to the American public is a kind of visceral experience. Again, the kind of thing I was talking about that John Kennedy did. Um, He offers them a visceral experience that is gratifying for them. Now, why? Well, you've got uh, it seemed that this country was making progress in social issues. And, uh, you know, we can pejoratively call it political correctness or what have you. But being able to tolerate differences and Uh, to understand that someone with a different color skin is our brother and our sister, that is psychologically challenging. Now, for millions of Americans, they were not, they did not own the kind of political progress we were making. It was creating pressure inside them. And what Donald Trump did is come along and say, come on, guys, you can all indulge yourself. You don't have to put up with this. Look at me. If I want to grab a woman by her genitals, I grab a woman by the genitals. If I want to eat 12 cheeseburgers a day and drink six Diet Cokes, I do it. If I want to have a temper tantrum, at the United Nations. I go ahead and I do it. You can just go with whatever primitive impulses you have and don't let the bastards grind you down. That's the message that Donald Trump gave to people. Now, for a mind that is taxed and overburdened and flagging, that feels like a tonic. It feels like a magical elixir. Mm -hmm. This is what... uh, a lot of despots have done over the ages. And so Donald Trump, for these people, is a hero. He's a liberator, because they no longer have to go through the mental discipline of dealing with the complexities of understanding that differences are something that we have to tolerate and learn to love. And he excuses us from that burden. So for a lot of people... Uh, this is a magic elixir.
0: Wow, magic. Yes, magic is so much more fun than science, and it's <laughs> it's always appealed to people. In preparing for this discussion, I was reminded, oh, back in the 1980s, when an old friend who was long since departed, he was a United uh, Unitarian uh, Universalist minister, Bob Karnan was his name, he said to me, Bert, there's only two things that motivate people in politics, fear and reassurance. And I believe he was right. How does this quote mesh with uh, your findings?
1: Well, I I think it is very, very pithy. You know, it reminds me of Gandhi's quote. uh, uh, We think uh, the the problem is fear. We think it's anger, but it is fear. Uh, And it is fear uh, that is at the root. And and. The thing I try to address in the book is where does the fear come from? Ah. Well, the fear comes from the mind and the social structure in which it's ensconced. And in America, we have created a terrifying state for the mind. The battleground states I talk about in the book, but the dissolution of family and community, the... the, the, the actual almost demolition of a lot of the supportive institutions that were supporting the reality testing of the mind. Uh, You look at all the professions, every one of them has been under a significant assault. The press or the free press or the media, uh, that of course has become uh, a horrible state of affairs. But it's not just the free press. Every single profession, doctors, lawyers, teachers, they are, have all been uh, controlled and suppressed in terms of independent functioning, largely by corporate America or the large corporate interests that are running the country. Those professions, while oftentimes they functioned more in the breach than in the reality in at their aspirational levels, they were providing supportive uh, alternatives to a uh, uh, blatant... Uh, exclusive kind of capitalistic greed. And I talk about the inner work effect that has on the inner workings of the mind.
0: And you make me uh, think about uh, lies that <laughs> people freaked out. I was, you know, very much around politically when Nixon was, was uh, kicked out of office because he lied. The president lied nowadays. Nowadays, This guy, he just lies all the time. I mean, really, no exaggeration. Just makes stuff up uh, and then insists that it's real. And I I had an interesting uh, Facebook conversation with a a right-wing person. This person actually dismissed the notion of objective reality. She wrote, Is it not possible... To predicate any reasonable discussions on feelings, observations, memories, intuition, impressions, preferences on anything other than verifiable facts. I understand that in the verbal exchanges often heard on talk radio, facts and statistics are too often tossed around like so much pie in the sky. Basically, she's saying, as, as uh, Giuliani said, there's no facts. There's no truth. And... and Feelings are just as important. Ignorance is as valuable as education, and it, 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 it goes along with what you've been saying—that that it's reassuring to people.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great example of what I was trying to communicate: that you indulge the mind. You know, facts are burdensome.
0: Yes, and yeah,
1: it's uh, you know, it's we should never be certain we have all the facts, and and uh,
0: well, we're supposed to question what have it. you. Yeah,
1: but. You can't just take a fact and discard it because it's burdensome. And that's what's happening in America. And and the danger is, uh, at some point, we can become a country that is so psychologically incapable of lifting that burden that we're no longer able to function as a democracy. Right. And that's the Eric Fromm quote, that it is it is taxing. It requires a mind that is able and willing to struggle with coming up with the best version of truth that we can, rather than turning it over uh, to someone who is just uh, making it up as he goes.
0: <laughs> oh, why not make it up as you go? It's so much more fun. <laughs> you know,
1: I'll I tell you your example, Bert, if I, if I could, sure, sure. Uh, of lies. One of the things that was striking to me in writing the second version of the book if you look at the lies of the Bush administration and you compare them to the lies of the Trump administration, I went on and on in the first book about Karl Rove and the elaborate, ingenious, intricate ways in which he deceived people in the support of basically a right-wing agenda. However, now you take Kellyanne Conway uh, or you take any information coming out of the White House they don't go to that trouble anymore they don't have to go to the trouble of weaving elaborate webs of deceit <laughs> they simply stand there and they act as if with their facial expression they know what they're talking about and they're telling the truth and they speak gobbledygook yes so the their audience it's much easier for them to work their audience now than it was 10 12 years ago
0: my goodness yeah and, and again it's it's image uh, and you know, I I have been long concerned about uh, uh, celebrity in politics looking good. As you pointed out, uh, John Kennedy looked a lot better than Richard Nixon on TV. If you listened on radio, apparently people said uh, that they thought Nixon won uh, because of uh, facts. But but the fact that these guys can just look like they're authoritative to some, it just I my my mind, I have a hard time with that. You point, and, and, and as you said, you know it, Donald Trump is not the problem; he's a symptom of a much larger problem. And you point back to the Reagan era and Gingrich's politics of anger as a major turning point for the American mind. What was it like before then, and how did his approach to politics undermine what it was before that? Well,
1: let me give you um, just as a, a starting point. Let's take just before Reagan. Let's take uh, when Richard Nixon was president. At the time of Watergate and the impeachment proceedings, Richard Nixon and Senator Ted Kennedy were negotiating a national health insurance bill. The only argument they had was Nixon wanted to do it through an employer-based program, and Kennedy did not. Now, can you imagine a discussion between Republicans and Democrats of that nature uh, it's, it's stunning. That was Richard Nixon. And you look at how far we've retreated from social justice and providing health care for people. Now, what, um, what then happened, and uh, I, I do go over this history and state of confusion, but I do think Reagan was a, a, a very important figure in it. I think, uh, I think Newt Gingrich in different ways. Reagan had a tremendous ability to wrap some pretty disgusting concepts in lovely packages. <laughs> he wrapped them all up. Affirmative action is wrong. Right. Uh, and uh, he then said, we called, he called this morning in America. Mm-hmm. Reagan had a tremendous ability to make the ugly seem beautiful. In the process, he, more than anyone, Took a sledgehammer to the federal government. Now, of course, the government is a uh, hit or miss proposition. Everybody hates the government, but the problem is the government is us. Right. The government is the only tool we've got to address these big problems. The government is who we turn to when the house is burning down, and the house is burning down in America. But everybody says, "Oh, the government is evil." Well, okay. Our job is to make it is to make it work. So Reagan knocked out the main tool that we had to deal with this. When Clinton came in, it, it, he was moving as close to the conservative line as he possibly could yes. to to wedge himself into an electable position. So Reagan, I thought, destroyed the idea that even Richard Nixon had that you could use government for good. Now, Gingrich, I was in D.C. lobbying for American Psychological Association, amongst other things at the time. And when Gingrich came in with his contract uh, with America, which we used to call the contract on America,
0: right,
1: uh, sure. he, he the level of animosity in the city in, in 1994, that's when it really shifted, and it started to get ugly. And, and I had encounters with, you know, I was obviously... spokesperson for, at least at the time, a very liberal organization. And I was just accosted by uh, some people who I never dreamed would think of me as being important enough to accost. (laughs) It was uh, was really, really ugly. So you take Reagan, you, you take Gingrich, and then you take Fox News. And Fox News, I think, has probably been the biggest of all of them, where you come in and you you create, you implant a reality in people's minds. And how Ailes was able to uh, blithely step into that position from where he had been and create Fox News was beyond me. But I spent a lot of time talking about the techniques that Fox News uses. And, of course, they've not only gotten more effective – but they've infected the rest of the media too so when my conservative friends say yeah but don't the other networks do it too yes they do and uh... the fact that it happened with the republican right is not a reflection on conservative values uh... as you noted very well uh... we've always had differences of opinion the country was founded on our ability to tolerate differences. We were able to have differences without turning them into hatred. We had a strong enough mental fabric, psychological fabric, that we could look at somebody who had created a different reality than ours, but we didn't have to hate them. We were not so scared that we had to hate them. So those are kind of key landmarks that I identify. And when George Bush came W. Bush came into office, I, I was very concerned, and that's why I wrote the first edition of State of Confusion. And now, oh God, it's, you know, it's it's uh, a dysfunctional mind on steroids.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. And some people love that. Certain powers love it. And and certainly, we yeah, obviously, we talked about the power of Fox. There's also Sinclair, which is coming up in terms of power, and they're maybe even farther to the right. But what—but— It's interesting, you know, Trump calls news that he doesn't like fake news, which other authoritarians like Mussolini have done. I think Mahia may have initiated the phrase fake news. But there's, as you point out, different realities for different viewers. It seems like people want reassurance. And so there's Fox and Sinclair on the right and MSNBC's Rachel Maddow and Lawrence O'Donnell uh perhaps cut from the same cloth as Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh in what way might they be
1: well yes no I I, I must say I I do I do see it that way too and um, you know I'm obviously uh, liberal progressive whatever I'm uh, point I occupy on the political spectrum so if I listen to the content uh, uh, of uh, O'Donnell and the MSNBC people, Rachel Maddow, I, I agree with them, you know, and and it, they're yes, smart. Yes. However, however, in a funny sort of way, if you if you turn the content off, and you listen to the intonation, what you hear is constant sarcasm, outrage, and an invitation to feel contempt for people who feel differently than the way you do. And that is a diet that just divides us and divides us and divides us. So that's what I was saying when I said Fox News has infected the other media. And when people uh, say to me, well, look, you've talked about Fox News. What about the other side? And in, in, now I think there's a lot of truth to that in the subliminal emotional communication that takes place. If I had to fact-check Rachel Maddow compared to Sean Hannity, I would be inclined to give the edge to Rachel Maddow. But in terms of the emotional implications at the deeper level of the human psyche, it's not a healthy diet they're handing out.
0: It's Yeah, it's not, uh, you know, it used to be, uh, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. That people trusted the news, and now, oh, mainstream media is is not to be trusted, and that that's very frightening, I think. But you know, Thomas Jefferson talked about the importance of a, a free media and and a free press able to do their jobs, and they they uh, you know the Pentagon Papers taking on the president, uh, you know, all these things. I I think. A lot of us consider the whistleblowers to be heroes, but my sense is that that's, that's changed quite a bit. I mean, there's there's Edward Snowden, who discovered the truth, the ugly truth, the uncomfortable truth, and I've heard people say they'd like to take him out and shoot him, because it just upsets uh, their beliefs. Go ahead. Uh, it's
1: interesting. As you started, my, my thoughts went to Snowden, too, and I... Uh, uh, it, I don't usually think about him that much, but your comments led me right there as well. And yeah, and his you know relationship is the, the connection with the Donald Ellsberg of of his era. Right. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's very very scary. There's a psychoanalytic concept called disturbing the establishment, <laughs> in which when you, uh, you know, <laughs> when you say something, you point out that the emperor is not wearing any new suit of clothes. <laughs> Uh, It really makes people mad because, and it goes back to the mind, because the mind does not want to have to address certain things that it can't contend with, and so we move into fantasy land. And the more we do that,
0: Mm.
1: then the more we're going to do it, because (laughs) the mind is uh, debilitated by that, and that was the problem I identified 12 or 13 years ago and that've I've just revisited with state of confusion and yes, it's gotten a lot worse.
0: Yes, it really has because people people seem more accepting of deception they don't know what's real and what's not real, nor do they seem to care as much as they used to. Now the term gaslighting is coming to use a lot. I frankly didn't understand what it was at first, but apparently it's based on a 1944 movie. When do you think the practice of gaslighting started? And please explain what it means and how it's been effectively used.
1: (laughs) Yeah, gaslighting has always been been my favorite movie. And just briefly, it's a 1944 movie starring Ingrid Bergman. And it's a story in which a, a much older husband is trying to Drive his young wife crazy so he can take over her inheritance. And the way in which he does that is to try to undermine her trust in her own reality sense, in her own mind's ability to discern what's real and what's not real. And he does this, and this is where the title comes from, by raising and lowering the gaslights, I mean, amongst other things. He raises and lowers the gaslights, and when she says, Who turned up the lights? He said, no one, my dear, are you, uh..." and eventually it leads to you must be losing your mind. And through a host of maneuvers like that, she begins to lose trust in her own perceptions. And that's very much the the kind of uh, vignette that you were just describing quite well of people. Oh, well, of course I don't know what's real. I'm never able to tell what's real, and I can't do anything about it. And so, and they regress. I mean, they psychologically regress to a lower level of functioning. So gaslighting, it's a term that's been in the mental health community for uh, several decades, really. Uh, you see it in families. You'll see uh, Oh, one uh, frequent stereotype is of a uh, man whose wife, uh, a man is philandering, and uh, the wife will become convinced that it's something she did that caused it. Mm. Uh, so it's it's a manipulation of, uh, of reality that we've seen clinically. But now we're seeing it on a wholesale, massive national basis. And your example of fake news, uh, Groucho Marx's famous saying of, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Uh, <laughs> it's gaslighting in which people no longer trust their perception. And, you know, uh, Donald Trump says he could walk down avenue and shoot someone and get away with it. It's probably true. And that's, you know, it's not an implausible idea that he could do that.
0: That's absolutely amazing. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. And we're speaking with Bryant Welch, whose new book is State of Confusion, Political Manipulation, and the Assault on the American Mind. What about gaslighting? What about the psychology of the gaslighter, him or herself? What sort of person can consciously exploit the vulnerabilities of others to their own selfish ends. That seems... Yeah.
1: Well, they're, they're all uh, individual histories to them, but, uh, and I describe some of them in, in the book. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time on Carl on Rove because we have a lot of data on Carl on Rove. Um, but basically, the gaslighter is someone who operates at a psychological level uh, that most people don't. He focuses on how you can manipulate the mind. And I do break that down, uh, spend a chapter breaking down the stages by which they do it. But ultimately, uh, ultimately the gaslighter is someone with a massive, massive resentment uh, about life and a very grandiose need to control it and to exact revenge and uh, have a transcendent, wow. splendid state because of the way they're able to control and manipulate others. So they're working on the mind of the people they're trying to affect. Um, and, and there are several different elements to it. Um, and it depends upon uh, secrecy and not being caught, not being detected. So it's a very, very insidious process. Wow. happens in families all across the country. happens in courtrooms. It happens in corporate America. Uh, there are a lot of victims of it. Hmm. And uh, ironically, as workers at executive levels have gotten more rights to litigate uh, around being terminated, you find more and more examples of uh, the environment being manipulated to make people you want to get rid of them you set them up. You you gaslight the entire organization, and get rid of the people who are standing in the way of the the gaslighter, who's trying to gain ascendancy in whatever organization, uh, be it corporate America, be it a, you know, seen it happen in uh, youth sports organizations, and unfortunately now it's happening in the White House, in the President of the United States, who's got his hand on nuclear weapons. <sighs>
0: Yeah, his button is bigger than Kim Jong-un's button. Yeah. It's it uh, The psychology there is just too obvious, too obvious. It's,
1: it's <laughs> unbelievable.
0: Here's another observation that has long confused me. One of the attractions to the religious right has been, you know, it's reassuring. It's it's simplified. It's a very reassuring order of reality. It, it, you don't have to... Uh, be confused too much. You can just rely on on what they tell you. Now, the religious right and today's Republicans insist they are the party of family values. Yet, they supported Roy Moore, Republican nominees for Senate in Alabama, who was accused of sexual assault on young girls. And we have a president who pays hush money to a porn star. They don't seem to be bothered by this stuff. How can you explain such? contradictions. What about the role of religious fundamentalism in the 21st century as it relates to our topic?
1: Well, uh, you know, I I can explain it very easily. Uh, These people are not hypocrites, which is what everyone thinks. What that is, it's a measure of how far their mind has gone into the obeisance to an external spokesperson who will tell them what's real and what's not real, so their focus is not on a pedophile. You can talk about a pedophile all you want to, but their mind is glued to the person that they've placed their reality sense and their, their certainty about what's real on Donald Trump or the religious right. Now, one thing that is really scaring me, when you talk about religion as reassuring, I agree with you. It should be comforting. But what I talked about in the first version of State of Confusion is that the religious rite was offering a new internal visceral experience. I shouldn't say new. It's always existed. But there was an increase in the kind of ecstatic experience that people were finding in their religion. And it was that state of ecstasy, Mm -hmm. the exaltation, that I think was critical to the reestablishment and the growth of the religious right. Now what worries me is that ecstatic experience has been taken out of the hands uh, of Pat Robertson and uh, uh, the uh, big-name evangelical people, and it's being put into the person of Donald Trump. Donald Trump gives them that ecstatic experience. Uh And then you can talk about separation of church and state all you want to, but it's ecstasy. It's an ecstatic experience that is affecting people. It doesn't have rationality to it. It has an inner state of liberation and exaltation, and that's what you see when you go to the Trump rallies. That's Uh what, uh, you know, we saw harbingers of it, I think it was the 2004 Republican Convention. Was it 2004? Maybe it was 2008. uh, Of people sitting there chanting, uh, uh, "Drill, baby, drill!" You know, that Uh, was uh, that uh, was an exalted, ecstatic state that crowd was in.
0: Very simplistic. Sure.
1: If once the the fire of religious ecstasy jumps the line and moves into the White House. Oh, it's Katie Bar the Door.
0: Interesting, yeah. It it just uh it takes over. And it's it's kind of fun, I can see that. And if anybody's ever been to political rea- political rally of any sort, there is a certain ecstasy about it. Uh, boy, that's interesting stuff. Now, how do the needs of Trump supporters compel them to accommodate or overlook what to many are such glaring character flaws and logical inconsistencies. I guess that's that's kind of what you're talking about.
1: Here's, here's the menu, Bert. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a plate of food in which you can think about uh, Roy Moore as a pedophile or Donald Trump as a, a self-absorbed uh, <laughs> excess consumer, <laughs> or... You can have the ecstatic experience we were just talking about. Now, which plate of food would you like? And that goes back to what I was describing with Nixon and Kennedy. You can have, it's the inner visceral state. And those are the battleground states that I talk about in State of Confusion. It's the experience. The, of, and, and it can be distilled. It can be taken apart. It can be looked at. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book. Um, so um, that's, uh, that's the experience, and it's the jumping the line of that experience into a presidential candidate that is, is terrifying.
0: Absolutely terrifying, and we've seen it throughout history. But then again, well, I look at history. That's too upsetting. Uh, and Trump has thrown incredibly childish tantrums. Uh, you know, it's not a stretch to call them tantrums. Who would have ever thought a president of the United States could be throwing tantrums? And he's demanding that his wall get built. This seems to have a lot uh, of psychological appeal to a lot of people.
1: Yes, God, yes. Duh. Think about it. What? Think about it. You can—all the psychological burdens that you carry about, you know, you're sitting there struggling with how do you organize a uh, an, an interesting, disciplined— textured interview. That's taxing your mind. But let me tell you, Bert, you can throw all that aside. You can take your papers and throw them up against the wall and jump up and down. Uh, That, for people who are frustrated, who feel powerless, who uh, feel like they're being screwed over, oh man, that goes back to our magical elixir. And that's what Donald Trump is
0: uh,
1: expert at serving up. That's what he does.
0: Wow. So you characterize half of Americans today as suggestible and regressed, in your words. You don't consider the other half of us particularly high-functioning either. In spite of this, <laughs> you have hope.
1: I, I, I And I want to say, I, I really want to be clear. I'm not saying that someone who supports Donald Trump is um, necessarily dysfunctional and regressed. We've always had different political Uh, viewpoints, and that's fine. What I am talking about is a dysfunction. Those of us who are opposing Donald Trump, we ain't functioning so well either. Um, And I think we have had a hard time uh, we're having a hard time lining up a candidate. We're having a a hard time um, uh, organizing ourselves and being able to identify the problems and address it. And I do, in this version of the book, contrary to what we've been saying so far, I do see room for optimism yes. in the mind. Yes. In in the time since I wrote the first version of the book, we've learned a lot about the, about the mind, and there is potentially good news if we'll pay attention to it and use it, ah. and and we can do that. Um, but I spend a lot of time saying, look, as bad as things are now... Uh, there are a lot of things we can do to turn this ship around. Yes, We don't have a lot of time, and we may not have enough time, but we've got a shot at it if we will pay attention to the mind, what we know about the mind. And, and we're very lucky in that regard because, honest to goodness, I think we can solve half of the problem just with awareness, 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 awareness. Uh-huh. And and I spend a lot of time on this in the book. Psychological awareness is a fascinating thing that we're beginning to understand more and more because of the pictures we get of the mind from neuroscience. Hmm. My neuroscientist friends have a, a saying, if you can name it, you can tame it. And they're talking about uh-huh, the mind. Uh-huh, sure. If the mind can turn its awareness both onto itself and on the external world and our problems, it is self-healing, self-correcting, and it begins to function a lot better. So there is a lot of good news coming out of neuroscience. We are having a tremendous renaissance in the mental health field in some areas. Um, there's been this cross-fertilization of Western psychology and Eastern intellectual thought, contemplative practices, whether we call it uh, Buddhism or whatever, but the psychology of it, those people spent 2,500 years looking at the mind in a way that we have not. And what they have found is the very act of looking at the mind through contemplative meditation that's easily taught, you can improve the functioning of the mind. So there's a lot on an individual level. And it translates into what we need from our leaders. Uh, the mind, the American mind, is struggling to create a reality sense. Leaders have to step up and help us do that. We had a wonderful example uh, with Franklin Roosevelt. In 1932, country was in devastating economic shape. Uh, fascism and racism were in ascendancy, and... Franklin Roosevelt, when he became president, the very first thing he said to us, first paragraph of his first inaugural address, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, I've read commentators who say that comment made no sense. Well, let me tell you, modern neuroscience shows that it was brilliant because what he was doing was identifying our psychological state to us. Fear. And fear was something that if we looked at, if we looked at square in the eye, we could then address the problems that were there. So Roosevelt comes up with his New Deal, he comes up with programs, he holds our hand with fireside chats, and we take on the problem of the Great Depression. And then there was this madman running around Europe, and he mobilized us to take that on and and to defeat Hitler Uh, and and to win World War II. Now, that was an example of where a president came in, identified, focused our awareness on a problem instead of of exploiting it, instead of taking the fear that came from 9-11 and saying, hey, there are Muslims over there who look kind of different from a lot of us. Mm -hmm. Why don't we hate them? They're the enemy. Go out there. Or there are people with brown skin coming up from Central America don't they kind of make you feel like cooties uh, inside you? And let's hate them, and I'll build a wall and keep you safe. By the way, while that's going on, I'm robbing you blind and stealing everything <laughs> and destroying the world for everyone who comes after me.
0: Yes. But I, I I like to think that, you know, it was like a two-boy four whacking us on the head that, you know, trying to be optimistic that it may be beneficial that we recognize uh, yet we re- revitalize our citizenship, uh, and that that we can benefit from this, from it being so direct and such a blow to us that that we got to get organized and we have to uh, take on the manipulation of fear. Well, the book is called "State of Confusion: Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind." Brian Welch, Brian Welch, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a fascinating, important look at what we can do and what's really behind what the heck is going on so we can not be powerless as uh, those with tremendous power like us to be. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Thanks, Thank you, Bert. It's been a pleasure. I agree. Thank you so much. A little bit of magic here. Truth is molten.